Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. We're going to be all about accurate forecasting of revenue and pipeline today. We're talking to Jonathan Tice, and he's with Ravana, which is a pretty cool name, I have to have to admit. So he's with Ravana, and now that the market has shifted, and we had Q1 was down, we're expecting Q2 to be flat, maybe down. So we might be truly in the throes of a recession already. And people are talking about, hey, I'm worried about my pipeline slipping. I'm worried about my forecast being off. And so this is an extremely relevant conversation to have. We've not had this on forecasting yet. So I'm really excited to see how this goes. So with that said, welcome to the show, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate your insights here. And I know that you said things have been shifting and moving around. So we're excited to see some updated insights on this. So, you know, one of the things that we always ask about, Jonathan, is, hey, listen, yeah, 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 so what? So you've been doing this for a couple of days, but why in the world should we listen to you as being the expert on how to accurately forecast revenue and pipeline? Um, Wow. Well, um, uh, I've been in the industry for 30 years. I've seen my share of, uh, of upturns and downturns, and uh, I've worked with, uh, gosh, eight different vertical application providers and four different horizontal providers. Uh, I've had the chance to run marketing, run sales, run both of those. Uh, long story short is you'll learn a lot of things. I, I, rather than saying 30 years experience, I like to say there are 30 years of, ex- of, of mistakes that somebody else has funded, uh, uh, or, or the other way of putting it is experience is what you get when your plans don't pan out the way you thought. So, so along the way, I've kind of gathered a few uh, kind of uh, scars and bruises, and I'm always happy to share some of those uh, to help people avoid them in the future. Nice. Yeah. And unfortunately, I wish it was that we could learn from our successes, but unfortunately, it's you learn from your failures a lot more often oh, yeah. than your, your successes. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's talk about um, when if we talk about accurately forecasting revenue and pipeline, what would you say the key tenants are to do this properly? Yeah, like a- any sales leader who's been put in the hot seat of trying to predict what deals are going to close? You know, the first thing they look at is is their their CRM or just the data that they can gather. Forecasting is all about understanding what are the leading indicators in the data that's telling you, and and so therefore that's why sales leaders want up to date, clean content in their CRM so that they can actually you know try to predict what might happen. Uh, uh, and so in a normal time, you know, the the two things that have never changed in sales as far as I've been around is understanding why a customer's changing and why they're changing now. And in these volatile times, that hasn't gone away. In fact, it's more important than ever. So, so it comes back to really getting a sense for, is the customer motivated to make a change, to go with your product, your service, and why now? And the why now is probably the most critical thing because pipeline slippage happens all the time. Everybody gets frustrated by it, but ultimately it's about understanding the customer's motivation for making the change with you at this time. And so knowing that data, uh, really matters when it comes to accuracy. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about leading indicators. So why don't you hit that? Uh, guessing that you're talking about KPIs, key performance indicators. So can you get you get a definition of what a leading indicator example would be versus a lagging indicator, please? Right. Okay. Well, so when it relates to sales pipeline and just the progression of the process, um, I've always subscribed to you know, you, you, the customer will tell you what stage of the sales process they are in based on their actions, right? You may feel you've qualified them, but they may feel that they haven't qualified you. For example, you may put yourself in a different stage altogether when the customer's still trying to figure out whether they should consider you. So I always look for what are the actions that your customers are doing to indicate that you're on a progression towards, uh, you know, in your sales process. Um, people talk a lot about the buyer journey and how you need to adapt your sales process. The more you adapt your sales process to the buyer journey, the better data you're going to get to know what their journey is and, and where you are at in that, in that process and those steps. Um, and so, so the leading indicators for me are actions by a customer that relate to 
you know, consideration, valuing your differentiators when you're in the compete cycle, understanding what your competitors are and how they you know, provide you time. So it really is actions in the pipeline that give you leading indicators. Um, uh, obviously, um, over time and with volume, you can start tracking you know, stage velocity. Normally, a customer would take a month and a half to get through this stage. And you can alert yourself to say, hey, are, are we like three months in here? Is this thing stalled out, right? Have you not qualified this well enough? You're not building enough trusted relationships, all those factors that go into sales. So, so a bunch of things go into those leading indicators, sales uh, stage velocity and the actions of the customer that progress through the process. Okay, now a couple of things come off of that. So uh, wholly agree with buyer's actions. And in a second, I'm going to pivot to a couple of questions around buyer's journey. But you also talked about stage velocity, but really nothing in here other than running a good, solid, effective sales process is really what I'm hearing from you. Well, absolutely. It's all about running an effective sales process, right? Uh, in fact, stage velocity going too quickly can be a bad indicator. Okay, so why is that? Well, because... Uh, skipping steps has always, you know, caused you problems. So what I mean by that is, what if you're in an enterprise sale, and that's most of my experience has been in complex enterprise selling, anywhere from six, nine, 18 month sales cycles, it's important that the customer uh, educate themselves and educate the buying group. Uh, most of the deals that I've been involved in are multi-threaded deals. One conversation doesn't convince an entire group, right? It's about building trusting relationships and sharing those data, those data points and, and learning as much as you can through active listening with the, with the customer. So, so if, you're, if you're in a qualification stage and it goes really quick, chances are you haven't uncovered really the key data points that you need to drive your value proposition when it comes time to pricing and proposal and so on. Um, you know, and so you'll find that customers at the very beginning of a sales cycle will tell you, nearly everything. They're very forthcoming, very open. And then over time, they'll start to clam up, right? Uh, it's just a natural part of just the buying cycle. Uh, perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's, uh, uh, you know, they're trying to negotiate early by not saying much. So, so if you <laughs> skip the details of a discovery process, similarly, a differentiation-based demonstration slash uh, uh, education type process, then you don't really get to nail your key value points and later your price gets eroded. Um, so those, that's an example of an effective sales process where you don't want to go too quickly through the velocity, that stage velocity. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is you also don't want to elongate it because time kills all right. deals. So it's, it's striking that de delicate balance. So with respect to that stage velocity, um, and, and again, I'm going to come back to this buyer's journey in a second. Do you suggest for proper forecasting of revenue and pipeline that there should be some type of stage gate management or a checklist that identifies they're in this, this particular stage versus that particular yeah. stage? Um, well, uh, so for certainly stage gate management is critical, right? Um, to know where your customer truly is on their journey. Um, the, the stages that are closest to contract signing are the most relevant for forecasting. And then you get kind of, you know, diminishing value as you go backwards from there. Now, um, are you so, putting a, a ratio on that likelihood of close yeah. as they go along through this as well? Yeah, there, and there's some great technologies out there that do this, uh, uh, where you're, you're basically are doing your weighted forecast based on the velocity and then a, a closed loop cycle that will update what those weightings should be. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, products like Salesforce uh, Revenue Intelligence is an example of, of just kind of having that endless loop of information informing what your weighting should be. Um, you know, in enterprise selling, it's, it's more than just the numbers. It's really understanding the deals, the, uh, you know, the value proposition, how deep of a relationship your team has built with the customer, uh, access to, to, to their time, their executive, uh, to information, how many champions, not just a champion, how many champions you have. Those are things that are hard to track in a software product, but are easy and well known by the salesperson and the sales leader. Um, and those things are also into a kind of a bit of an informal. Um, so when I've done pipeline forecasting, I typically do it on a rolling four quarter method. Um, the, uh, I'll kind of come back and explain why four quarters in a sec. Uh, but the in quarter and next quarter are all around, uh, you know, how well are we competing and can we get the deal done in time? Those are, you know, in quarter, especially with enterprise with if you're involved with InfoSec and complex contracting. If you haven't got 
that started mid through the quarter, you're not going to make it, right? If you get awarded a business today, June 21st, <laughs> it's it's not going to happen this quarter, right? Um, on the other hand, it, this is the time where you want to compete and win for next quarter. Make sure you get those things in. So, so, so your intimacy of those deals has an adjusted factor to that weighted forecast. So, so when I've done forecasting in the past is I'll have the numbers tell me what the numbers tell me, weighted forecasts and using a bunch of different tools, but then I'll adjust that based on my knowledge. And the most important thing is, is that I'll be declarative as to why I'm adjusting it. Um, and so, so what the forecast should be is the data is the what. The so what is what is it telling me? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And then now what is what are my prescriptive actions as a result of that? Um, and so, so again, going back to uh, the weighting side of things, that's informative, that's good data, um, but your intimacy with your deals is most important uh, and making sure you're not getting, you know, happy ears, you know, really looking at the data and what the customers are telling you. Okay, so off of this, um, we're doing, so let's hit that stage gate management again. Are you, how disciplined are you requiring them to be is one side of that question. Right. The other side of that question is right. over the 30 years, whenever you started this, there was no such thing as buyer's journey. Nobody was really talking about that. Yeah. It was all from the sales process, from the seller's perspective. Yeah. And now we're really seeing a shift in the marketplace where people are talking about buyer's journey, where people want more that B2C type purchasing process in the B2B world. Right. So how are you tying that or adapting your clients through this transfer of seller-led sales process, stage gate management to this buyer-led, like you said, the right. buyer is where the buyer is, checklist management or not uh, stage gate management yeah. and yeah. adaption to that? Yeah. Well, uh, very few of your, your listeners, Brian, would remember that Miller Hyman was out in the 80s and there's these things called blue sheets and green sheets and maybe made one or two of your audience chuckle by saying that. But in the very early days, it, there was still buyer journey thoughts, right? Breaking down to the persona level, the person, the buyer committee, what their wins are, what their pains are, those kind of things. But to get to your, your, your question is, is, is that a buyer journey it's around uh, buyer journey sales process is really around harmonizing the engagement process. Your organization that's selling needs to know certain things in the early stages, mid stages, and late stages. The, the companies that you're selling to need to know certain things in the early stages, mid stages. And so it really is a rounding up that dual education process. Really, that's what it's about. And so, so then you say, okay, well, what is that logical process? And I'll use a very simplified version. The first one is, hey, I want to know enough about you whether I'm a good fit or not. Me as a supplier, you as a customer, right? And a lot of our a lot of a lot of vendors don't qualify their customers well enough. Uh, critical, important for early stage companies, but I'll come back to that if you like. Mid section is really about tell me more about the solution, right? The next stage is logically, hey, if I were to embrace this, how would I, how would I, how would I embrace this solution to achieve my outcomes? Right. So, you know, too many software vendors in the past have said, hey, my successful outcome is you signing a deal. No. Right. You know, in this age of SaaS and consumption, your successful outcome is the customer achieving their successful outcome. And so show me what that journey looks like. So, again, just to recap, it's a should I even consider you? Is this a good fit? Tell me more about your solution and how does this work and what are the uncovered opportunities that I may have that you, you know, that I haven't thought of? Tell me how I would embrace this. And then it becomes, okay, then we're going to get into a decision uh, a path and uh, in, in the contracting. So for example, if, if the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the sales stage gate, in my mind, our confirmation email of what we've heard about their critical uh, uh, needs in the form of an email sent to a customer allows us to move it to the next stage where you've confirmed what you've heard, you've, you've documented the, the agreements and the next steps. Right. And so I can go into Salesforce or, or any other CRM, HubSpot and so on and look, hey, is that email in there? If it's not in there, then why are we in this next stage? Get it back. Right. <laughs> next one, of course, is a confirmation of what the requirements were, confirming that they value our differentiators in some way. Right. I'm, I'm, this is very simplistic, but that type of thing where you're looking at documented and, and accepted uh, 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 content by the customer will tell you, yes, now I'm going to the next stage. 
Similarly, the implementation path, by implementation, I don't mean to go live, I mean implementation to successful business outcome, that slide deck or however it gets presented, you know, if I don't see that in the CRM, then you're not in that stage, right? So those are, the, those are examples of how you can use customer confirmed actions. Even though it's us that's driving a lot of the actions, you know that they're, they're along the way. So forgive me on this. I mean, this is all just being a good salesperson. This is all, yeah. you know, doing the right steps along this. So if we're supposed to be doing this anyway, yeah. how is this allowing us to the accuracy of forecasting? I mean, other than just being really good salespeople. Okay, excellent. I would bet you that the vast majority of your listeners, Brian, are great salespeople who follow the sales process like we just discussed. There is a overwhelming majority where steps are skipped, the attention to detail isn't there, the active listening isn't there. So what does that mean? That means that as a sales leader, you can't always rely on what you're seeing and reading because frankly, there's a lot of sloppy hygiene out there. Um, and and I, would love, I would love to believe if we all had a perfect sales process then we'd all be winning our business and nobody be competing with anybody, but that's not how it works, right? Um, so, so back to forecast accuracy then, assuming you've got this hygiene and discipline, then you know as a sales leader how confident you are about winning that deal. You may have done all the critical steps, but if you've learned enough about the customer and they're not really biting on your differentiators or they're constantly bringing up objections that you know are your, your competitors' key strengths, you should know, you know, hey, maybe this isn't a good fit after all. Right. So, so those are the things that the data will tell you, but, but the problem is, is that the attention to the detail isn't always there. Yeah. So in reality, then it's ensuring that somehow we have documentation within our CRM that's fairly easy to do because salespeople are notorious for not wanting to do the admin side of it. Right. So it's really easy to document this within your CRM to identify where you are. And it's really up to the sales leader to ensure that it's not just a bunch of fluffery in there, that there's good pipeline man or pipeline, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Really delving down to uncover, is this legitimate? Uh, have we really gotten this, right? It's, it's kind of like, um, talking to your salesperson, they're really good at the, the uh, making up stories, right? right? And they're making up stories, making up stories. And then whenever you start as a sales leader, start to ask those questions, well, what did it sound like whenever they said, yes, I'm, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And they're going to be silenced or looking at you all cross-eyed or, right? They won't have the right answer. So then it really gets to good sales leadership to make sure that one, it's all, it's documented in there, but then two, that what's documented has been validated. Is that right. a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. You remind me of a great story and I won't mention their name, but uh, I'll tell the, 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 this account executive said, look, I told them that I told them that. And I had said to them, I know you told them that I can trust that, but I don't know if they mirrored back to you that they agreed. And so, so, you know, come back to me and show me that they agree with it. Like, is it in the email, the language, whatever. So funny story was that rep was doing okay at the time. After about a year, he took off and has not stopped making significant amounts of money because it was really realizing that you can tell somebody 10 times <clears throat> until they tell you, you haven't checked the box on that thing. So validation is absolutely critical. Uh, and, and frankly, if you can get mechanisms to validate that you can easily measure in your CRM. This is the problem is if you're really great with the hygiene that we're talking about in the CRM, there's a lot of messy noise in the system. So there's some great tools out there that help kind of, you know, bring that noise up um, and allow you to bring people into your deals because enterprise selling is a team sport, uh, both sides, right? Um, you know, with up to seven or eight different personas on their end, typically you're probably bringing in six or seven different people from your organization. So, so having great Clean, you know, a great hygiene in your sales force means that you're able to uh, bring people efficiently into your deal and win those meetings. So you've brought up a couple of times different technologies that help with that. Can you give a couple of examples, please? Um, yeah, actually. Uh, so on the on the topic of um, uh, just the mathematics of your pipeline velocity and so on, I used Insight Squared in the past. It was quite good. There's a new version out now that I, I haven't seen, so I can't speak to that. Um, um, we, we, uh, one of my companies had a 
fairly robust system where we dump data out of Salesforce and into Tableau, that's called now uh, Salesforce uh, CRM Analytics, uh, where we did a lot of that magic math, as I call it. Um, but, but most of the time, you know, my most successful technology, frankly, when it comes to pipeline forecasting has been just reading the pipeline and distilling down what I think is really going to happen. Uh, yeah, because it seems like what Miller Hyman did bring to the, to the table is really good process. So whether you're using medic, whether you're using Sandler enterprise, whether you're using Miller Hyman, or you name the methodology of that enterprise sales process, it seems as though if you have that, you know, a book called checklist manifesto, where you can check that all of these items have been done to keep this going along, it seems less about the technology and more about the adherence to the checklist. For example, whenever I was flying airplanes, we used to call it checklist discipline, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you missed a step in the checklist, the chances of you dying or or crashing the airplane were pretty significant, right? So we called it checklist um, discipline. So it seems like we have to have checklist discipline especially in these enterprise sales. Is that a, I don't want to. Yeah. 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 And, and people say, look, you're taking away the craft and the, you know, you know, I'm really great at this stuff. I, frankly, if you want to make a lot of money as a sales executive, you want to run as many deals as you possibly can and try to remember all of these details across all of those. It's easy to make a mistake. Right. And, and so, so, but that discipline, that discipline drives your win rate up significantly. It, it is really quite incredible. Why? Because you're on top of the game. You know what your next steps are. This meeting is about getting to the next meeting. So part of the agenda of this meeting is to sell the need for the next thing you want to do. Knowing and having, you know, knowing your path and balancing that with the customer's path means that you can, you know, drive that journey together faster. In the process, it doesn't take away from the, the need for empathetic listening. Right. That is probably the single biggest thing. It's so hard if you don't have face to face selling like we haven't had in the last two years. Right. Um, so that discipline checklist keeps you on your game and, and more or less amplifies the need for, you know, uh, uh, being being thoughtful uh, about where you want to go in the, in, in the sales journey. Yeah. And, and I think the people that will push back against this are those that, and I'll ruffle some feathers here, but if you're a bad salesperson, if you're not a really strong salesperson, you're going to push it back against this because you're more in that relationship, right? It's all about the relationship. Well, no, it's not. It's about building trust. Can you properly challenge them to identify the real business case here, the business objective to solve? And if it's you can't solve it with your solution, then take it to a no, because all you're doing is wasting your time and their time. And what we found is so if you go back to episode 96, whenever Dave Curlin was on here, um, the top salespeople required. So a lot of people are using challenger sales or Sandler enterprise, or, you know, you name it, that those better methodologies, they have to be in the top five to 6% of all salespeople out there. And so if you're not doing these things, I would challenge you that you're not in the top five to 6%. And that's why 54% of you are likely missing your targets. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a funny quality of life to this, Brian. It was kind of funny. The top 5% of salespeople I know tend not to make, you know, tend to make it home for dinner every night. <laughs> they tend not to work weekends. They're so hyper-efficient and focused on what they need to do that they can choose to work the extra hours and make that much more money. Uh, and so it's not like they're lazy at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're so disciplined that they're able to manage and have a, you know, a better life as a, as a top salesperson, making more money and having better quality of life. Yeah, because let's take it to a professional athlete. If you look at a professional athlete, none of them are just saying, hey, let me off to my craft. I mean, if you look at the best quarterbacks out there in the league, they have coaches upon coaches. They're looking at all the statistics Mm -hmm. and they're constantly improving it. So it's not just let me do my craft. It's let's do this the most efficient, effective way that's going to help you, the salesperson, you, the company, and then you, the buyer through this process. I mean, it, it just makes sense because selling is a process. I mean, it truly is. It's a a predictable process that you may lose. If you can't, if your features and benefits don't compete or won't solve the problem, then take it to a no as quickly as humanly possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a a time, a long time ago, 
uh, I ran sales marketing, but I did every uh, discovery call uh, as it came out of the BDR before we passed it to the salesperson. And I was able to qualify to an incredible degree of accuracy, whether we we're closing or not. Uh, and that's because this particular space, the things that we offer, you either valued them or you didn't. It wasn't a shade of gray. If they all I'd like nice to have, perhaps, right? And so be, you know, after that first discovery call, I would, I would basically do a bit of show and tell and ask questions and basically say, I don't think we're a good fit. Right. I, I don't think we're a good fit. And only on two occasions did the people that I qualify out actually came back and eventually bought. Um, and that's because they realized that the things that we talked about, they didn't think were important at the time. They got a chance to think about it. They came back and said, you know what? Those three things are critical to our business. Let's go further. Uh, and so, so our win rate at that time was in the 70 percentile level. level. Uh, and it was also very much, we were a very specialized area with very limited competition um, that the market had nicely divided itself. And so there were organizations that are going to be my customers and organizations to be other people's customers. I just made sure we didn't waste time with somebody else's customer. Yeah, and, and I think that gets back to, you, you only have a couple of levers, right? It's the market. It's the mode through which you reach out to the market. It's the message that you send to the market over mm -hmm. those modes. Mm -hmm. And then it's the messenger that's conveying all these. So if you think yeah. about it, there's really only four yeah. variables within it. Within you'll have multiple variables within it. So mm -hmm. what you just talked about is make sure that you have your targeting right mm -hmm. for the market. Make yeah. sure that you know your personas, their emotional compelling reason why they're going to take action. So that gets to your message to that market to, uh, to get them to say yes or no to it. And if they're not going to have an emotional compelling reason why to change, yeah. Yeah. I don't care what you do. I don't care how great you are at features and benefits and demoing and presentation. Yeah. It's going to be a, a huge waste, which goes back to what you said, running a good discovery call where you can identify these. And if, it's, if they can't be identified, then just give up on it, put it into your nurture campaign, and then come back to one that you can actually win. For sure, for sure. And, and you touched on, you know, the psychology or, or the neuroscience of, of the buyer's mind, right? Uh, I, I, uh, through Pavilion, I, I sat in on a webinar that was actually presented by a neuroscientist. And, and, and one of the things they talked about is even in business to business, all purchases are personal. And, and, and not only why change why now, but understanding why, what's in it for them, the personal side, what's in it for them, I mean, from a really deep emotional uh, perspective. And you can only get there if you build trust and you can only build trust quickly if you are establishing your credibility that you can help them. And so being relevant um, is, is so critical. And, and it, so it's a funny balance in the discovery process where you're trying to learn from them, but you're also trying to establish your credibility that you've seen this problem before. Everybody's unique, but you know you can help them. At that point in time, then the customer will start to, 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 to reveal their personal agendas. Uh, but if you don't have that, you know, then you're right. You know, all the features and benefits in the world, or if it's a commodity deal, you're just going to be a race to the bottom on the pricing side. Correct. And, and just to reiterate, relevance does not equal personalized. Right. So I don't care how personalized you make it. Oh, you went to the same university I did. Oh, you're like yeah, yeah. this or blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Your personalized does not equal or equate right. to relevance. That relevance builds that trust and shows your understanding. And that's what's going to allow you to push through this yeah. a little bit more quickly. Now, let me come off on this buyer's journey a little bit and ask, what are maybe some key ways if people haven't really figured out what the buyer's journey is? Do you have any mm. suggestions on how should people go about figuring out what their buyer's journey is? Yeah, well, um, the way that, that I've done in the past is go ask your customers <laughs> that have already bought from you, what was their journey? Start there, right? Start there um, or, or authentically approach people to say, look, I, I, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I want to understand if you were to buy a product like this, how would you go about it? But your customers are by far the best. Um, specifically customers that have been through the implementation process. So now the risk, you know, the perceived relationship is way down. They're a lot happier with their outcomes and then they'll take you back. Um, it's also important to remember, and I've seen this like for 30 years, why a customer tells you why they're buying, what they actually buy, buy and what they actually implement are often very different. And so, so, so part of it is, um, is in the way enterprise technology comes as categories. Right. I think I want to buy a RevOps solution. 
well, that's friggin' that's amorphous as a Martex solution, right? Um, and then we go, well, well, which part of it? And their immediate pain might be something, but over the course of conversations, a different pain emerges, right? And so, so it's really critical to make sure that in the sales cycle, you're following that shift of pain or the expansion or contraction of what it is they're trying to solve. Um, you know, sometimes they will say, I want this big, huge solution. And reality is they'll go to a point solution because they recognize that budget and, and culture low in their company won't allow them to take a big elephant on and be like, let's go with something smaller first. So it's critical to follow, you know, that, 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 that um, personal pain at the same time as understanding what is that one thing that person really wants to do for their personal gain of, you know, is it a promotion or is it accolades, a bonus or whatever? Now, um, you might not have the answer to this. So if you don't, don't make stuff up, please. But I'm kind of curious, what's the average accuracy rate right now in forecasting of revenue and pipeline? And after they work with an organization like yours, what should it be? Uh, I don't have an answer for you. There's lots of stats out there that are great because there's two different things here. You mentioned forecasting of pipeline and forecasting of revenue. You know, the forecasting pipeline typically equates to how accurate you predicting how many contracts will be booked in a quarter and how, what the value of those contracts are. Revenue is something completely different. So before we jump to that, the accuracy of, um, of, of how, how close are you to calling the contract value and the number of deals on a given quarter is a really difficult problem that, that all sales leader face. Uh, I, I've faced it at many different companies and came up with techniques, survival techniques is what I call them, that allow me to get really, really accurate. Uh, 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 you know, you're always going to have surprises. Everybody understands those surprises. But if you're communicating what you're seeing and, and why you're seeing it, then there's empathy in the room. A lot of times, so whenever you, you said really, really accurate, so what can you throw a percentage? What really, really accurate? You uh, I was do? I was 80s and 90 percent. You know, on occasion, uh, uh, when I say 80s, 90 percent, if I'm 110 percent over, that's still a 90 percent, right? Uh, you know, just to be clear here, I had many quarters where I was over, but that wasn't 100 percent. That was you know off that. Um, but the 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 key thing is is that um, that's a that's a reasonable tolerance, mainly because Forecasting is as much about communicating what you're seeing and what's changed so the organization can adapt. And so, so the, my pipeline forecasting method would be this period, this is what I'm seeing. Last period, this is what I saw. Here's the delta. Let me explain what's changed. And that is probably the most valuable data for everybody to be able to react because in the end, you've got people like the implementation people, uh, other, other inputs to making the customer live, they're all in a bit of a whiplash depending on your accuracy, right? This gets really, really difficult if you're in a business model where you're not being paid an annual subscription like the vast majority of software where we've come from. <clears throat> With the advent of uh, consumption or usage-based pricing models, uh, which organizations are on the rise to use, um, uh, uh, then it gets really difficult trying to forecast what that revenue is. Uh, and so, so, you know, why people are going to those usage-based models, basically you're dropping a lot of the friction and barrier of, of adopting a technology. If I can use it or I'm aligning the use of your technology against my operational inputs, those kind of things. There's lots of great reasons for why some, some companies have exploded with, uh, by turning to usage-based, but at the same time, it's been an incredible challenge for organizations to predict you know, I, I signed a $100,000 contract. Is it really a $100,000 contract? Or is it a 100,000 contract fully realized and the first year is actually gonna be 60? Like, how do I, how do I dig into that? And so, so uh, uh, I've come up with techniques because I've been in that situation of a few different vendors. Um, and, and I applied those techniques to get closer and closer. In fact, in one organization, my board measured me on the accuracy of my booking against the revenue on a cohort basis. And I get to play a little game with that if I was under or over that kind of stuff. Um, but those techniques are now baked into a lot of software uh, that can now help you with that uh, uh, with that, that problem. Got it. Okay, so we should expect an 80 to 90 percent accuracy rate off of that to be ideal. And then um, so let's talk a little bit about um, when you see people ramping up their forecast of revenue accuracy or um, making sure that the pipeline, is going through with the pace that they'd like. 
what would you say some of the biggest challenges that you see people having or biggest mistakes people making whenever they start to pivot to more accuracy in these areas? Um, um, uh, so again, we're talking about sales pipeline bookings, uh, accuracy, um, revenue accuracies, another set of problems or challenges. Uh, but the biggest mistakes on the booking accuracy is, 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 is really not knowing the situation clearly enough. Like I, I'm going to talk at the broadest level first, and then I get some very specifics. If you truly don't know why your customer is changing and why they're changing now, then you probably are going to have a problem this quarter with slippage as organizations are taking a stutter step on their operational budgets and say, hey, do we really need this? But if it is a truly clear and compelling why change why now, then there is a good chance you'll get the deal signed in the next 10 days. Um, uh, the, so, so that clarity of that, and only, only through the relationship and access to those people, that's the leading indicator. If you can pick up the phone and call the person who's gonna sign the deal and they're gonna answer you and confirm that, yeah, no, we need to get this going, then you're gonna have a, a more accurate uh, uh, booking. So, so the challenge is, is that communication, um, your differentiation, a lot of organizations, uh, it, there's, there's a, a term called uh, commodity differentiation, meaning if everybody has the quote, same differentiators, it is really commodity. So what are the true things that you're trying to compete with on your competitors and your customers value? And what have they done to demonstrate that they value that? So those are things that will drive your accuracy. Um, uh, and, and then really it's a matter of timing. Can you get the work back schedule in a place where you can get this deal signed before the end of the quarter? Got it. And so off of that pipeline, then that gets into, like you said earlier, if I run a poor discovery conversation, that's going to cause some slippage. If I'm running poor sales process, that's going to cause some slippage. And one thing that we haven't discussed is how important are having in the calendar next steps agreed to by your buyer yeah. in terms of one for pipeline accuracy, meaning getting that through there, through there um, and then closing accuracy of that pipeline. Yeah, it's critical in every step. The most critical is in when you've been selected and, and a lot of, a lot of uh, I've seen the, the, the biggest you know, slippage or challenges going sequential. And, and, and there's a lot of your listeners that already know what a work back schedule is, a mutual action plan, you know, those, all those terms. That's where you sit down and help your, your buyer uh, understand what they need to do to get this done and what you need to do to get this done. And because you have way more experience than most of your buyers do. And so being able to categorize the lanes on, you know, budget approval, signatories, infosec, if that's a thing for them. Uh, uh, and certainly contractual term review and so on. Those are all parallel streams that try to get things in the books. What we found is, or at least my experience is, having that written out and, and providing that as a shared doc, often a Google doc, so you can both look at it at the same time, um, uh, uh, but then a weekly 15-minute checkpoint in the calendars until this deal's done so that you know you've got access to that champion who's trying to get your deal done. So critical, critical, critical that you get multiple dates, not just the sequential dates, right? Interesting. Okay. And then from a forecasting of revenue, and you're kind of switching things up a little bit, mm -hmm. making a distinction between yeah. forecast revenue coming off of pipeline versus realized revenue from, yeah. you know, have we implemented it? Do we have user adoption? Is there the right. renewal? Yeah. All of those type of things, right? Yeah. Well, so let, let, let's go there for a second. Is for in my mind, in my selling career, I didn't know the difference between revenue and, and bookings until I got to a company where you, we didn't make money on bookings because <laughs> you couldn't rely on that booking to happen unless we did something. And so these are consumption or usage-based contracts. So, so what we can do, what we did to, to call the booking numbers is, well, how many transactions did you do before? And if you do those again this year, this is the theoretical value of that booking. Uh, but then you basically say, if I'm only being paid on revenue, which, which if consumption-based uh, organizations are going towards, revenue uh, being comped on revenue, quoted on, on revenue uh, are, are very kind of interesting things because the, the sales reps commission then is going to be timed by how the customer ramps up their usage. Uh, and so there's really three big things that are hard to predict as a revenue ramps up. One is when will it start? A lot of contracts rely on the customer to implement or integrate or projects to happen. You may get paid for those as a services contract, but the actual transactions 
uh, uh, have a deferred start date. I call that ramp latency. Then the usage of the of the of the service or, or, or software has an interesting curve. Typically, it's adopted by a core group. That core group may go faster, may go slower. You may, you know, uh, and then it ramps up. So every organization has a different curve. And then you have run rate revenue, which is a seasonal, which is impacted by seasonality and adverse event, uh, events. So, so you may have a consistent usage pattern until January, and then it drops off like a cliff, and then it picks up again in March. These are all part of forecasting revenue. Um, and so in, the, in, in, in quite a few years ago, I realized that I could categorize all of my customers into seven or eight different categories. We, we locked in on seven and, 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 and some were summer seasonal, some were even flow across the year, some had different patterns and so on. And, and so we actually started to tag them as we signed the customer and put them into a revenue schedule on a very large spreadsheet. Uh, that spreadsheet grew to thousands of customers. So you can imagine how daunting that was. And we basically said, here's, this is a customer. They have a summer pattern. This is what their revenue should be based on what we think the booking is. And that gave us a significant amount of accuracy because we could allow for the variances at a monthly level. The problem is, is that there was no way to update that as when life happened, right? Similarly, because we were growing so fast, there was a bunch of pipeline that I could take the same categorization with and apply the weightings we talked about. And then say, hey, look, I know I'm going to get this revenue because I booked it and I think it's going to come in this pattern, but I'm also going to get that revenue. So revenue forecast quarters out should include that, right? And so again, massive amounts of spreadsheets and VLOOKUPs and just crazy stuff. Obviously, it relied on an incredibly close relationship between myself, the CRO, and the finance team, right? <laughs> um, and so... Uh, um, so those were the kind of the things that I innately learned to do. Uh, interestingly enough, when I was looking, uh, I, I was looking to give back to the community around consumption model and revenue forecasting. And then everyone said, you need a data scientist to do this. I said, well, hang on, hang on. Actually, you've done this before. Let me write up an article, uh, which ultimately got published uh, with uh, OpenView uh, with Kyle Poyer, um, where he said, it is possible to do it if you follow these steps. And, uh, and so that article uh, got published back in December. Uh, it was like, whoa, there's actually, you know, it's not it's such a daunting challenge. Oddly enough, a former employer of mine is now the CEO of a company that does software for that exact problem. So it's only a natural fit that I ended up at Ravana to, uh, to run their growth. Well, you'll have to kick that article over to us and we can put that in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, All right, yeah. perfect. Well, okay. Now, how about from a business business suggestion, whether it's around talent, hiring talent to run this mm. effective uh, pipeline and revenue forecasting, whether it's how to, sell, uh, how to sell better within this or scaling a business to be able to do this more effectively. Pick one of those. What would you like to give us some yeah, advice on? Yeah, well, and so we're, we're not, not to put a plug in, but we are hiring and we're growing like crazy right now. And the things that we're looking for are a lot of things we talked about. And in, in, in specifically, because we sell to finance and finance tends to be a fairly disciplined group of people that you need to understand how, what their processes are so you can align with them and maybe help twist it a bit. Um, and so it's really having that, that, that discipline of structure and planning in their brain around what the steps are and, and forward thinking. It's about um, a high fidelity of communication, quality communication. Uh, it's just astounding how many sales execs forgot the, the grammar lesson they learned in grade four or grade five and how important that is for certain audiences. Um, you know, as an aside, I sold to higher ed. If you pulled you know, that off in higher ed, you get a red line version of your email sent back to you by the pro. Um, uh, but back to back to the, so that discipline is really important because it's appreciated by the buyer audience. They appreciate structure and process and, and thoughtfulness, uh, and also the fact that every step is a no go or a no go, right? Um, uh, it's also important that you know with that is an empathy for the finance buyer. Finance people tend not to like to talk to salespeople, right? <laughs> <laughs> even crazy, even crazy if they thought, work for right? the same company, right? Yeah. Uh, and but at the same time, if you're able to establish credibility that you truly do understand this problem that we're describing, that you know we have demonstrated that we can solve it, we try to make connections with their peers and our customers as quick as possible. You know, you you bring that kind of you know perceived risk of dealing with the salesperson. It does make the buyer journey very different for us. We've tried to we're moving away from the demo as the call to action. Thank you for doing that, for goodness sakes. Oh. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that to validate the thought. Um, and so, so 
you know, but we as a SaaS industry have been fixated around discovery, disco demo contract, right? Well, no, that's not how a finance person wants to educate, especially senior executives like we're selling to. Um, so it really is about buyer uh, discovery, buyer self-guided discovery is what we're calling it, um, where we're revamping our website. It's not live yet around having thoughtful sequence communications content rather um, that they can discover. And then obviously at a certain point in time, it makes sense to invest the time in learning more. And that learning more is really more about the business practices of forecasting than it is about the software, right? Uh, obviously the software supports the business practices in this scenario. Uh, but but, but uh, uh, sorry that we got down that rabbit hole. Uh, just to, to, to wrap it up, the, uh, an excellent account executive is someone that can think like a business person, a strategist who can own that customer's problem, help them see that they can drive a path and most importantly, in my mind at least, is that you have an organization that will achieve the outcomes they're looking to achieve, the customer is. Meaning that it's as much about, or more about the execution, the achievement of what they're trying to accomplish than simply buying a tool and then have at it from there. Exactly. Okay, so cool. Um, now, how about different resources that you might recommend, different books, podcasts, articles that you wrote? Uh, well, I, I, I would love to, if anyone could send me articles on revenue forecasting, but the, there's a, there's a um, uh, uh, forecasting is a funny discipline because it really is around two things. It's around uh, knowing what data and what leading indicators um, uh, are, are useful. Um, if you're an organization that's looking at becoming a master of forecasting yourself, there's a discipline called backcasting, which is quite interesting. Um, actually, just to tie in, a, a, there's a podcast uh, called Starting Greatness by Michael, uh, Michael, Mike Maples Jr. Sorry for starting that name. And um, Stefan Bensel, who's the CEO of, I hope I said his name right, uh, is the CEO of Moderna. And in that podcast episode, he talks about this whole discipline about backcasting 30 years out so that they can forecast increments towards that. Um, but that's also a fantastic podcast for those that are on the early stage journey, like we are at Ravana. Uh, 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 Mike is a venture capitalist, and on the show he's had Andy Ratchcliffe, who's the grandfather of product market fit, uh, one of the first original shows, Mark Andreessen, Stephen Blank. Uh, Bob Metcalf was by far my favorite. Uh, when you listen to Bob Metcalf and the journey that he went as a, as a, as a scientist, founder, et cetera, uh, and, and just some of the incredible learnings that he shared on that podcast, amazing. And it's also cool to hear somebody who's invented something that 5 billion people use every day, right? Um, anyway, so, so on, on the book side, uh, 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 the one that, that, that stood out that uh, is as we're growing a company, it's all about the culture that we embody that is pervade to the market. And uh, Ben Horowitz, who uh, wrote the book, uh, Hard Thing, What Hard Things, followed up with, uh, with what you do is who you are. And, and of all the books on culture, and I used to be an HR guy way back 30 years ago, um, culture really is the set of actions and disciplines that you agree with as a company. And so that book was quite interesting. And what was so interesting about the book itself was the stories that he used in the book were not traditional uh, business book stories. So a really great read, but also it reinforces the, as we build our culture as a company, what are the actions that we want to celebrate and reinforce? And what are the things that we want to do away with? Because that will define how we grow in the future and why customers choose us. Nice. Okay. Now, how about um, what do you see coming down the pike in terms of forecasting revenue or pipeline? Um, yeah. You know, doing doing that whole bit. What what future trends do you see coming down that are either you know got you excited or maybe oh I'm a little worried yeah. about that. Well, um, you know, everyone's excited about this market volatility. Uh, I would say it, but not being a positive thing necessarily. Um, um, but, but you know, market volatility is is a real focusing exercise, and and especially if organizations have a variable uh, revenue model, uh, it's time for sales leaders to get more focused than ever on the fundamentals of their business. And I, when I say fundamentals, I don't mean the selling craft that we talked about earlier, but also how your business operates and how it ultimately generates value and revenue. Um, and, and there's a lot of people who, this is their first, this is the first quote, I don't know, is it a recession? We're not sure, right? Um, you know, I've been around long enough to remember 16% interest rates in 1982, right? The market crash of 87, uh, uh, the dot bomb, all that, right? And so what you realize is that every time that comes along, it's a refocusing exercise. And so, so what I'm excited about the future is, 
is seeing the craft of sales leadership evolve from sales process techniques to more fundamental business strategies, both for your customers, but internally, you know, being, being that leader that is contributing, not just the contracts, but, you know, setting up the realization of that revenue. Uh, right. So the professionalism of sales and sales leadership. Yep. I love it. Well, Hey, listen, I really appreciate it, Jonathan. So who should reach out to you? How should they reach out to you? And why should people reach out to you? Uh, well, I'm, why, uh, I'm, I'm passionate about this discipline. It's a fairly new discipline in its form right now. Forecasting has been around in the economic sense, but now this is at the hyper micro level. So techniques and, 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 and approaches that people may share. I'm certainly always game to get on a, a, a Slack or, or a chat or a Zoom call to talk about strategies to help that. So the ways to reach me, I'm, uh, I'm active in the Pavilion community, uh, Rev Genius uh, Sales Enablement Collective. Uh, um, uh, those are the easiest ways because you could just direct message me from there. And, uh, uh, and then if, uh, if you do want to direct message through LinkedIn, we can connect that way and find a channel that makes sense for us. Cool. And you said, uh, so Pavilion Rev Genius and Sales Enablement is another Slack sales channel? Sales Collective is another, yeah, the Sales Enablement Collective is interesting because their, their community, um, hopefully I do this justice, is really about how do we enable the sales function? And why I pick on, uh, you know, by zero in and hone into them is any organization like Rev Genius and the, and the Rev Ops Channel Pavilion, it's all about how do we increase the competency of our salespeople. And ultimately forecasting is about a highly competent uh, sales team. And so I'm supportive of any of those collectives and any of those groups that are looking to do that. Yeah, and they're, they're really solid groups um, out there. So cool. All right. So a couple of things come out of this is one, make sure that we've identified within whatever CRM that you're using, those leading indicators that are going to show buyers actions have been one suggested and two committed to, and then third, actually done, um, figuring out your, uh, your stage velocity through this, make sure that your buyer's journey is harmonized with your sales strategy and sales process. And you're looking at that qualification stage. And I think you really jumped up and down on that, Jonathan, making sure that that is a really good, solid qualification process where we're going to educate them, give them some suggested outcomes to expect and make sure that that's in alignment for them. And then really work on that timeline scope and working through that deal flow management, because let's face it, like you said, they have no idea how to buy this. They buy it once every three, five, 10 years, and you're selling this multiple times a quarter, my hope. Um, so walk them down that path, be a good Sherpa for them. Um, make sure that you're hitting that 80, 90% accuracy on your, on your um, pipeline um, realization, and then work toward to figure out your revenue realization, especially as we head into this, this downturn in the recession. Remember, relevant does not equal personalized or two different things. So make sure that we're doing that. Check out what backcasting is. Sign up with all of these different resources and reach out to Jonathan, for goodness sakes. He's been a, a wealth of knowledge. So I really appreciate it here, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been great to have uh, this conversation with you. You bet. So for the audience, remember, the learning for learning's sake is, is pointless. It's learning for application's sake. Uh, what's the one or two things that you're going to take from this conversation and apply to your world? Uh, give us a thumbs up, rate us, give us a five-star review, make sure to share this out. And we really appreciate your time here. Get after it, everybody. Help communities to thrive through entrepreneurship. See you.